Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, this is Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, your host today on the Surgical Spirit Podcast. And I don't have one or two, I've got three lovely ladies. I'm having a foursome with these three lovely ladies today. So if you can introduce yourselves and let's get going. Um, my name is Dr. Fiza Ali. I'm a neurology registrar and editor of Medical Woman magazine. I am Gail Hamill. I'm a child and adult psychotherapist. I'm Dr. Nagat Arif. I'm a GP with a specialist interest in women's health and I do some of this media malarkey when I can. Yes, you do. You're, you're really active on that. Um, the first question that I've got for you guys is... Do we need men in medicine? <laughs> that amuses me. <laughs> it's funny because I was doing a panel in Edinburgh Medical School um, and the debate was, is medicine still a patriarchy? And I thought, yes, medicine is still a patriarchy because I think we, although we have unique challenges, I think when it comes to women in medicine, we are positioned in society which is essentially patriarchal I think. Do we need medicine? Do we need men in medicine? Yeah sure we do but I think we can still do so much better to further the interests of women in medicine. Uh, could you give, you give us examples of that? In what way? I suppose I mean if you look at wider society what's the sorts of news that we've heard recently we've had things about um, gender pay gaps and there's no actual sector where there isn't a gender pay gap I mean whether you're looking at financial firms or you're looking at communications the media and then you've got things like um, allegations of sexual abuse in Hollywood and you've got the exodus of female MPs um, because of sexist comments and things in politics Mm. and I think you know in medicine we also have a gender pay gap we've had Um, comments about a sexist culture within our own trade union Um, so I think those things permeate through and actually it's not just about um, organisations it's also how that filters down to individuals individual female doctors and how they're affected too so there's a like a positive bias towards this narrative is that what you mean that language is too complex for me (laughs) oh um (laughs) <laughs> I mean, is it is it a kind of a culture that's there, that's ingrained within medicine and this culture hasn't changed? Because at the moment, the majority of presidents of the medical colleges are women. But this is something that you're seeing more recently, isn't it? Yeah. And do you not think when we've got, when we have to counteract things like unconscious bias, that we have to keep at these things? And actually, just because we have female presidents of royal colleges, that doesn't mean, I, I, I mean, it means something, but it's, there's still wide, a variety of disparities in other places. So if you think about 
my own specialty, I'm a neurology registrar, and when you look at higher grade registrars or consultant grades, it's over 70% are male, mm. over 70% male, and that goes across various other specialties, not in things like general practice. And I think that shows that actually it is about cultural change and we haven't moved enough in terms of cultural change in medicine yet. And just to take up that point that Fizz has made, actually, when you do have this 70% um, disparity in regards to the genders, women in medicine are making choices where actually it might suit their home life better. Mm -hmm. So in general practice, I, there's something like 60% of the workforce are female. And if you ask them, they'll say, well, I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to be a neurology um, consultant. I wanted to be a gastro consultant or an A&E consultant, but actually doesn't fit in with my lifestyle. I've got children, I've got a husband to maintain, and that doesn't fit into it. So you have to look at medicine. Does it actually um, benefit the woman in regards to what she wants to do, or does she have to make sacrifices? And sacrifices is a word that as women I commonly hear, and that's not just medicine, that's almost in almost every field of work, of course. In fact, there's a really good study that was done by the World Health Organization that looked at healthcare across the world. And it said that 70% of the healthcare is maintained by women. They will, from nurses upwards, will maintain it. But the top sector, which make decisions, regulations, pay um, in regards to, um, you know, the way the system is set out is still by men. And it was titled something like healthcare maintained by women, um, driven by men. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> And, that, and that's the World Healthcare Organization writing that. Mm. So you look at that and you think, hang on, it's going to filter still through. And that unconscious bias is still there. Women are still having to make active choices in regards to, is this going to suit my lifestyle or is this going to suit my career choice? Unfortunately, women still can't have it all. Yeah, mm. and well, and you know, when you look at things like the availability of less than full-time training, I think that's surrounded by a culture of restriction. Um, and I think that's problematic. I think men should be encouraged to train less than full-time as well. I mean, the majority of people or trainees in medicine who are working flexibly are women and the predominant reason is for caring reasons. Mm -hmm. So that's just another example of where I think culture in medicine fails us. Yeah. And actually, I think if you look at different specialties, you can sort of see, you can maybe get a little mirror image or an insight into what culture is like because, I mean, surgery is something like 10% consultant or just I think it's 13% something similar consultant grades in this country are women mm. and I think that's pretty shocking mm. really mm. Um, but also you, you look at the women in that they will still say to you I have to compromise childcare or I've delayed a family mm. or I've probably not got married yeah. but the expectation is is that women is her worth is valued on is she a homemaker <laughs> first and foremost <laughs> and how many children has she had then she's a doctor and that is infiltrated amongst all different cultures so in my culture um i'm a doctor i'm a mother but do you know what actually relatives in my house will say to me and i'm going to speak punjabi here sorry you know apni doctori shaktri chup karke karya karo that means do your doctory quietly and because they will still value your work as it's a it's a second thing oh she's got her degree that's really good <laughs> but actually where her value really lies is has she is she making her husband his three meals a time and are her kids well does that frustrate you 
Of course that frustrates me. I think that's it's almost like a straitjacket because mm. you're intelligent enough to do your degree, you go through the rigmaroles of the process and doing medicine is so hard it's, and, and it is really hard yeah. and it has to be hard for a reason. And you go through that and then you start making your choices saying... It's even can, harder now that you're working it. It's even harder than you're working because mm -hmm. then you are made res made restrictions by your cultural influence. And in this society, I will never be able to walk away from my cultural background. I'm first and foremost a British Pakistani Muslim. Yeah. And is, I value that highly. There, do you think there's an element of... This is a bit... I'm <laughs> being a bit naughty when no, I say me. this. But is there an element of choice in that? <laughs> and the lifestyle choices you've made? So in regards to... In regards to the sorts of... I mean, I agree there are societal pressures and I think they are to do with, you know, the way people even talk about women's bodies and ownership of women's mm. bodies, not just how women are in the domestic environment. But do you think that there is... Um, can you control the amount of pressure you receive from that oh, or perceive? You do, that? you do. And it, that takes a lot of um, core self-belief in yourself yeah. in able to um, counteract that pressure. Um, but I know I've had to cow down to that pressure because what I really wanted to do was become a gastro consultant right. and work up that. But the life of a medical registrar yes. um, is not worth living. And you know that. And the on-call bleep was my bugbear. And I couldn't do nights um, with a child at home and all the responsibilities that come after it because I have to then care for my parents at some point as well. Um, and other relatives uh, that come along the way. And, and so I had to make a choice that was going to be effective enough that I could practice clinical medicine that made me happy, uh, be practical enough in, in my clinical medicine, as well as have that balance with my home life. Mm -hmm. And that's a choice that we're still making. But if I look at my male counterparts, yes, they do have to make some struggles and make some tough choices, but I wonder if they're on a par to women and I'm gonna put myself out there and I don't think they are, even if I'm shut down for it. You're looking at I think, me. I think, <laughs> I, I, I'm sitting here, you know, I'm, I'm not medical, I'm, I'm a psychotherapist and I, I'm listening and I'm, I'm hearing the conflicts and the restraints on that that model, that vice. And in our world, actually, males are, are not present enough. So we, we come from a different place. You know, psychotherapy was always very, you know, kind of white middle class, um, people that could have the money to go and afford to train. And we don't have enough males because we need, our young people need males and, and often psychotherapists and counsellors are female. Mm -hmm. So I actually sit really interested and I think actually for my world I want, mm -hmm. and in fact I have someone in training, a male therapist at the moment, because I think that is lacking in our world. So it's fascinating to me the differences. But can I just ask you that? Is it because psychotherapy is seen as, in quotation marks, a female's role? For example, midwifery is still seen as it's a woman's job, or mm. nurses is still seen as a woman's job. That's really interesting because, you know, when you look at medical specialties, um, we were talking about this 70% or greater majority in specialties like cardiology and gastroenterology and respiratory and neurology. But then when you look at the specialties that are sort of more 50-50 or more balanced, they're things like palliative care, geriatrics, and then you're thinking about paediatrics. And in surgery, I think one of the sub-surgical specialties, which is 
which has more women, I think, is obstetrics and gynaecology. Yeah. So you start to think about, are these women playing their roles from their personal life yes. in their professional yes. life? Yes. Yes. There yes. Yes. And there are certain roles that actually you will find that men will just want to take all over. I remember distinctly as an FT doctor following the coattails of my cardiothoracic surgeon that I was following around. And this poor patient was lying on the bed waiting to ask the cardiothoracic surgeon all the questions about his upcoming surgery. Um, and the surgeon said, uh, there are two people that will save you, Mr. X, um, God or me. Frankly, God is not here. I love that. <laughs> I was just well, there. I was, was a surgeon a man or a woman? Man. Yeah. A man. I like his ego. Got, exactly. And I just thought to myself, I, the poor patient, because I was the only woman on oh that team as well as an F2, just looked at me in fear. And, oh. and you sort of think to yourself, I wonder if a woman would ever be cocky enough to say that. No, I think, mm. I, you know, if that was me in that situation, more compassionate approach, to be quite yeah. honest. But I, I think it's interesting how, where our ideas of what women are or can be in medicine come from. And I think that starts quite young and probably earlier than medical school. But if we talk about medical school, I think part of it is... Um, to do with visibility and mentorship. I mean, when you were talking, I was just thinking about the mentors that I've had in my life, and I've I've never I've never had someone who's the same gender or ethnicity as me, mm. you know, and that's fine. But I think it's just quite an interesting observation. Yeah. Um, Doesn't so, that mean there's a lot of pressure on you now that you've got a younger generation of females who want to go into the space that you're going into? Do you mean pressure in terms of mentoring wrong, yeah. others? I mean, I, I would say that because of the sorts of experiences um, I've had or the things that I'm more conscious about, I feel that I have a responsibility to use the roles that I'm in to um, facilitate or to help mm. others. And I think that's something that I've learned over the last nine years. I mean, when I first started sitting in committee meetings, I think I used to be quite quiet and sort of sit there, watch everything that's going on. But more and more, I realise that each individual has such an important role to play and what they bring in is so important. And sometimes part of what I bring in is about being, you know, my gender, my ethnicity, my experiences and backgrounds in medicine, because that is unique in a way, and it's important to have on the table. I've sat in meetings where we are, you know, talking about organising a conference which is on diversity, on women, and because we homogenise women's experiences so much, we're just sitting there thinking, is this really <laughs> about diversity? Is this authentic? Yeah, and it's, it's a bit like, because I'm not, again, not in that world, it's a bit like the mental health let's talk about mental health, let's have, you know, uh, events, but actually are we modelling it? Right. Are we starting with ourselves and modelling what we're asking society and our, and our clients or our patients to do? And I think that's lovely because you're saying, can I be authentic and true to myself? Is it permissible mm -hmm. in this diverse situation, to be honest? Mm -hmm. But coming back to your question, Heather, you said, are men required in medicine from the patient's perspective they really are because they're men male patients will want to see a male um, doctor female patients will want to see a female doctor and i think that's fine my personally if i was a it wouldn't bother me if i was a patient as a female and i went it, the gender doesn't come into it i just need to see the best person for who will be able to help me um, but patients still feel and they have this concept in their mind that the best doctor is a male doctor. 
there have been so many times that I have, uh, and, that, and I, I think that word that encapsulate that really well is possibly respect. There's still a lack of respect for female colleagues because they will just make the assumption that I won't get the best service. And I've had that throughout my career. I've had that in general practice as well, where patients have come to see me and then I'll see two days later, they've booked in with a male colleague of mine, um, possibly a senior colleague, because maybe age is, is a factor that plays in that because I'm a younger GP at my practice. That they you look will... 19 as well. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I'll take that compliment though. <laughs> My mother of three children. <laughs> and they, they, they will always go, I, on the whole, about 80 to 90% of the time, it's a male colleague that they'll go to for a second opinion. Now, I've lived with that. That's absolutely fine. But I've genuinely had patients... Do you think that's more to do with gender rather than race or anything else? It's hard to say. Mm. But I, on those occasions... As we're talking about gender today, yeah. I would say it's gender. Mm. Probably it is an ethnicity. I'm a is job. this changing? Do you think it's changing? Or is it is that Do you know the what? same as 2020, I did a clinic on Monday and I saw a patient who saw me. And then Tuesday, they went to see a colleague who was male. And oh middle class and white. You know, and I don't know whether that's race or gender. or But there's, I, there's something there which clearly I wasn't able to fulfil. Which is absolutely fine. I'll take it on the chin. That's part of clinical practice. Patients are more than entitled to have a second opinion, and I would encourage them to have a second opinion. But whether it's the it's they've done it because of respect, and I've often had patients who will come and see me. I call out their name. I'll open my door, and I'll say, "Oh, hello, Mr. Bloggs. I'm Dr. Arif." And I've had a patient who'll stand there and say, "Oh, I was expecting a man." Hmm. I just find that really interesting because they will say that to me. I, you know, I. Do you get that in, well, in, in I hospital? Well, I never used to get that. And mm. I worked for a long time in the Midlands and then I moved to London about uh, over two years ago. And I don't know whether it was the... Um, it is hard to get into London neurology, okay? There's that. Yeah. There's also um, level of seniority. You know, you've gone up a, a grade. But I remember walking down the stairs and to meet a patient who was in an ambulance, had come as a stroke call. And the paramedic and the patient's wife were looking for Dr. Ali. And I was just like, hello, here I I'm am. Here. Yeah, and yeah. the other time, I walked into clinic and, it was, you know, I, I introduced myself, I was introduced, and the healthcare assistant in front of me, female healthcare assistant, looked over my shoulder for the neurology registrar. And I just thought, this is never, these two things have never happened to me before. What is going on? Mm. And that's why I think that, you know, men are important in medicine because they need to help us and we need to help them with equality. But it's also about, I think it, there's something about this that it's not just about being a woman or being a particular ethnicity. It's also other women perceiving you in a certain way. And mm. I think maybe that goes back to how we see women in certain positions in society. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's complex. Actually. So like that unconscious bias, that's the what, psyche. It's the psyche. The psyche is, you know, what are we brought up with? We're brought up with strong figures. We think back to a primal sense, who's the strongest to keep us alive in a pack? And I think the psyche is trained to look at that, in some respects, that male figure. And have we really shifted from that perspective? in terms of the medical world, whereas in my world it's very much they expect the female and I would have, oh, I, I'd rather see a female therapist than a male therapist because I think a female's going to be more compassionate or have more empathy, mm. but that isn't necessarily true because females can be as unempathic as any male could be. Well, I, so stepping away from medicine, Gail, with that theory, you know, the pack mentality and mm. having the leader at the front, do you think this is why 
the top 5% are all men. So politics, you look at that, you look at healthcare, you look at laws that are being made, infrastructure, money, bankers. Yeah, I think there's an unconscious trust there, but okay. I also think there is, uh, in, in some ways in the male brain, I think there is uh, sometimes more of an ability to cut off and shut off and make decisions that are a little bit more, um, well, less compassionate, but that's not me saying that a male can't be compassionate because they can. But I think that's why that happens. And I think there, there needs to be a shift because I think women look often to men to do that instead of entrusting in themselves. You said something really lovely earlier about could I be genuine in what I was really thinking? <laughs> um, can we show strength to one another that we can contain? We can contain that need. So that comes to maybe as a as a female species, if I can say that, uh, we just lack the self-worth and self-confidence. I don't want to say that. I'm not sure I like that. <laughs> Do you I don't think, like that? Oh, no, no. <laughs> I, think I don't like it, but maybe that's what we need to be tackling. I think on an evolutionary basis, I think categorisation is quite a helpful thing to be able to do. Yeah. Um, and I think in medical school, we're our teaching is based on categorization. I mean, if you mm. think about um, the cases that we're presented with, it's to do with, you know, a certain gender, a certain race, presenting with a certain set of yeah. symptoms, you yeah. know, a black child, pain, sickle cell crisis, yeah. mm. white child, um, cough, cystic fibrosis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think the problem is that that doesn't necessarily help us. I don't know, I don't know if your comments about self-confidence I, you know, there's something about nature and nurture in there, mm, yeah. which I'm not sure how much to expand on right now, but perhaps goes back to the discussions about society and culture that we've been having. I mean, it's yeah. a provocative um, co comment, but I've often had colleagues who will say that I probably won't put myself up for this role. I probably yes. won't do this. Mm -hmm. But then a gentleman that's been in the role for six weeks is now her senior. Mm -hmm. and, and you look at that and you think, and this is, I'm not just talking about medicine, I'm yeah. talking about in other roles. Is, is there enough support structure amongst women? in order to support each other and, and move this forward? I would say probably not. Mm. I mean, I think we're trying now. It goes back to what I was saying about mentorship and sponsorship mm. and the sorts of mentors and sponsors that I've had in my career. They've Should the owners come from, from the younger generation, the older generation? You can't or split is, it. I think it's um, got to come from both ways. Both ways, yeah. yeah. Both sides. Both yeah. sides, yeah. But, uh, but I see a culture of women uh, feeling sometimes threatened by other women. I think Agreed. that that, that yeah. is still very present. Where does that come from? Yeah, where? Well, I think going back to the point about looking to the male and then to be chosen by the male, mm. you know, thinking back to the animal primal sense, to be chosen. So who's going to be the chosen one in that psyche of which one of us is well, going to be the chosen one? Yeah, it just, it just <laughs> occurred to me, I mean, Thatcher... She was a woman of her time, and like her politics or not, but her cabinet was all men. Yeah, it, it was, and that was very much of the time debated. Did she? And we're want, still having that debate yeah. in twenty twenty. Did she want to be the only woman? <laughs> yeah. If we look at her psyche, did she want to be the only woman in that position, or did she entrust men more because she felt that men could contain her? You know, I think that's what interests me about it. I think and there's women, more women now in politics. Yeah, but they're leaving politics at the mm. same time I mean so mm. the 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 overriding tsunami which is social media is playing a massive role people feel um almost vindicated to say whatever they want to say about whatever woman is you know and the the, the derogatory awful language that's used trolling for example mm. you just have to look at the Paul Caroline Flack um mm. scenario recently 
and women are hounded. They're hounded mm. out of their positions. Um, just recently, you look at Pretty Patel and the fact that she's accused of bullying. That's fine, but the way it's termed or the way it's written, it's very much that quotation marks bitch. It's kind so of this doesn't happen in medicine. It's happening in politics. No, do you, I, do you, do you, I don't know if it's. Is it happen? I think it probably is. It's just not in mainstream media. Mm. I don't. I don't know. I don't mm. know. Mm. I've not had any mm. personal experiences of that. So let's move forward with this. Let's move forward. You know, how can we bring this together, form that circle? What would you like to see, Nigar, in sort of five years' time? Yeah. I think definitely that the structure way the, N the NHS is in regards to supporting women up the career ladder has to change. So it has to take into account um, training, less than full-time training, looking at the way they do their nights and incorporating childcare and the caring roles that women do, but also looking at men who have those roles as well. And, and that has to come from a partnership. At the minute, it's not them and us. It has to be just us. And that's a difficult thing, but small steps are being made. And having conversations like this allows... Any organisations out there that people can contact or uh, magazines or... Yeah, so the, there are. So uh, Women in Medicine magazine um, is trying to empower women within medicine across all specialities is doing that. Um, general practice is very much empowering women. It's taking into less than full-time roles. If a woman goes on maternity leave within her training, she's full paid on maternity pay. That changes once she becomes a self-employed GP, but that's still a contentious issue. And I know that changes are happening within my own Royal College of GPs. They're small steps. Yes, of course, they're small steps. And things will take time, but we need to be having this conversation. I, I keep saying 2020 is the year of the women. We've already had, you know, leap year. Uh, women <laughs> are asking for their own proposals. Yes. So let's just ride this. Yes, <laughs> let's continue on. <laughs> I, I, I think for me, I, I work with children. It's part of what I do in psychotherapy. And I think we start at a grassroots level and we start to improve uh, our self-concept. You mentioned earlier um, of female and, and male. You know, it's, it's both. But I think shifting that uh, mentality from... Um, having the hero, you know, we're brought up with stories, you know, happily ever after, the mm. hero will rescue us and take us away. And we've based our lives on those stories for centuries. And I think it's about starting with young children and allowing them to have a strong self-concept, no matter what their gender, they can move in and do what they want and achieve that. I think that I sort of agree with what's been said and I think change is going to happen on three different levels. You've got the individual level and I think we need to work on our own unconscious biases, and I think we all have them, we need to work on, on our own imposter syndrome and be aware of those things. Then there's the organisational level, and I think things like, you know, less restriction around less than full-time training, um, having childcare at conferences are things that you've already mentioned are important. And then the societal level, I think we need to address the way our culture is towards men and women, and I think we still are quite patriarchal. If you look at Scandinavian countries, they have a kind of lose it, use it basis when it comes to um, maternity and paternity leave, and I think that, that facilitates a culture where roles are more equal in a way. But the last point that I will make, I think it's really important that we have a more, um, we look at equality across the board. We don't just talk about women or we don't just talk about sexuality. We look at it across the board because unless we have that, um, unless we look at equality across the board, I don't think we can actually make change that's longer lasting. Because some people would say that actually now the issue relating to women in medicine is somewhat resolved, if not resolved. And now the big problem that we have is to do with class. 
But actually, you can't. I don't think you can split these things up. No, I think it's no. about taking them across the board. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, talking about children. Yes. Um, they're getting sicker, or am I? Am yes. I? Uh, um... Here is the question. Health anxiety is <laughs> through the roof. Here is the question. Are we busy? We're busy. We're busy. Yeah. But it's it's. We're busy worrying. as adults. We're busy as adults, but yeah. we're we're busy as child therapists because we we're trying to provide what's been missing in children's lives. In my view, what has shifted in terms of our cultural and societal shifts in how we parent, wow. and fundamentally that is causing children to feel lost, to feel anxious. Um, and for me, that's a huge part of our work is looking at the systems. Are children getting sicker? I think they actually are. I think is it they... because we've lost that parenting skills that our parents did it so... Well, we thought it was effortless, you know, effortless. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. But, you know, they had to work on it. Yeah. Um, do we underestimate the, uh, the role of parenting? We've lost our communities. I think I think mm. that's the first thing I would say on it is that we have a lot of professional couples moving away further and further away. I'm one of those people. I moved further and further away from my family for for love, really. And then you find yourself without that support. So we're we're trying. I see a lot of families trying to bring children up with two individuals, and they say it takes a, a village to bring up a child. That's really true. Mm. So this is playing out. It's funny, isn't it? Because we have this actually extreme connectedness in terms of media and mobiles, and it's actually causing the opposite. Um, And that's not just in (laughs) with children and health or health in general. I think it's kind of happening in other spheres as well, like romance, like how, you know, (laughs) online dating and all of that. So, I mean, social media, having this connectedness while social media has its pros and cons are, and everybody knows about them but what's having that human connection yeah. which children also need they they're losing a lot of children are on their ipads on their phones and i as a parent yes my nine-year-old knows the ipad better than i do <laughs> so <laughs> um and, and there's two ways there's two ways of looking at it. one i'm really pleased that he's keeping up to date and connected in regards to his friends his family because that's how he communicates with his uncles who live abroad and also he is able to keep up with the technological advancements way better than I am, someone who's a bit of a dinosaur. I know you said I look like 19, but, <laughs> but I do feel like a dinosaur. <laughs> and, you don't look like a dinosaur. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is that that connectedness, that human contact means that those emotions of expressing yourselves or having that uh, face-to-face contact is lost. Because when that child grows up, when they're 15, 16, their hormones are raging. They want to have that connectivity on a, on a, on a personal level or they're thrown out into the world oh, yeah. to have resilience. I think that's the thing. The word resilience is what we are missing. Resilience only comes through connection. You know, yeah, we, we are exactly. designed for connection. A baby knows how to be cute in order to have its needs met to have its survival, it will die without that yeah. connection. And we need that throughout our lives. We're the only species that needs love till the day we leave this earth. Yeah. And if we if we are allowing our children to um, you know, go down a path where they're connecting with a, a false, you know, a screen, mm-hmm. they, they can't be with the emotions that they're experiencing. And if they can't be with those emotions, then they can't manage those emotions. And then what we see in practice is we see 
the child having a meltdown and the parent then I can't deal with I can't they, deal with that when they down. come off the screen yeah. you know because then then we've got this parallel process of the parent and the child not being able to to manage the the emotional influx because we've cut off so that's a really big really big problem that we're seeing I think there's almost uh, there's a three people in that relationship there's a parent the child and then screen time and that relationship is really hard to manage uh, and I hold my hand up to that sometimes when I am busy doing something I probably will give the iPad because that's the best babysitter I know and and but then it's trying to find that balance of getting a child off the iPad and having that connectiveness whatever it might be for my children they just run with football I mean Fizzo was in my car earlier it's a mess with mm-hmm. football stuff in yes. there and that is that outlet they just love the sport and I parents are finding their um their connectiveness regarding different activities and that really as we know has a huge impact on mental health physical exercise but I I, I often have this conversation with my mother because she came from Pakistan with three children not speaking a word of English I'm the eldest of five and she often has said to me looking after you guys was so much easier. I don't know how you're parenting. And I think the reason is, is because roles within a family have changed. Women are working, women are not staying at home. My mum was a stay at home mum. Her primal focus was just on us guys as yeah. five. Yeah. And so we'd come home, we'd, she'd make sure that the chapatis were made, the food was ready. She'd make sure that our breakfast was done in the morning. She'd be up before us, the house was clean. She would do our shopping for us. And then when we came to 16, it was right, go and get find yourself a Saturday job. Yeah. And that was how we did it. And we sort of mulled our own way whilst trying to find the balance between our Pakistani background as well as this Western uh, uh, new ideology that we were learning and trying to have that mishmash yeah of course we had arguments at home when we were younger it was almost like well my white friends do this well we're pakistani you're not doing this (laughs) and most arguments were either you know resolved with a threat (laughs) (laughs) but there was a boundary there was a line they got wasn't there which we need we need and, that contained. and threats don't work I, no. I put my two-year-old on the naughty step and he got off it and he goes well I, I'm bored yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have an opinion which is really difficult exactly <laughs> and my mother said to me I would never let you guys have these opinions <laughs> yeah but, then, but there's something in we were talking earlier about kind of having it all you know having the career and having yeah. our children and for ourselves as adults we need that to be a good parent we need to be happy in ourselves there is a real balance in the psyche of that but equally we have to acknowledge that whilst we are doing that we cannot be fully attached to that child giving them everything they need we need people around us to do that we need to foster teachers to be able to be good mentors we need to foster professionals to be good mentors to create people around our children Mm. if we want to have this equality then we've got to create communities for our children that are full of great mentors because we can't give it all. So do you think that because they, we are lacking mentors and we're lacking all these community connectiveness that we are children are growing up less empathetic? So we've got all these campaigns like hashtag be kind, hashtag mental health matters. And are we losing empathy along the way? Or is it because we've got this outlet, which is social media, that we can spew out whatever vile views we have (laughs) well children look to each other for help and they're ill-equipped so teenagers look to each other that's why gang culture starts and things like that because they look to each other because if they're not having the 
the attachments in their own life, they will look elsewhere and they look to each other and they feel each other. So that's where it's dangerous. You know, you've got to have uh, someone in your life that you trust, you know, one attachment figure. Um, and a lot of children don't have that. So that's what we see. So we work with families to create that. It's not about fixing a child. It's about creating a system. So that's interesting you say that gang, gang culture is on the rise uh, because um, where I practice, although it's a very sleepy village, there is a lot of gang culture. And we've had knife crime, you know, in Dunstable yeah. and Milton Keynes, we've had um, knife crime, which is really unheard of in these areas. Is it because children are forming their own village? Yes, they're creating them? their own communities. And, and troubled communities, because you bring into that community what you've unresolved, you know, what you haven't managed, what you haven't had the help to deal with, what you haven't had. I talked earlier about uh, male therapists and male role models in, in the psyche for children. They're, they're required. They may not have a father in their life or a mother in their life. So, yes, they're seeking refuge in the safety of that. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've got, to, we've got to start creating more around children at grassroots level. How can we do that? you know what's the sort of you know the easy steps to move forward is it to reduce uh, um, artificial time with these machines yeah is it thought leaders is it community leaders is it faith-based non-faith-based schools I I guess it's the whole it's all of it yeah it's everything you've just said you know I was out the other day and I was in a cafe with my daughter and I saw a mum with a young baby and the young baby was kind of doing that thing, you know, engage, engage with me and mum's on the phone and, mm-hmm. you know, our, our, our society's changed mm-hmm. in that sense. We are distracted. So, yeah, we've got to get back to, to the old-fashioned mm-hmm. connectivity. Mm-hmm. And what about, I think there's a lot of pressures on younger children as well I mean I remember I didn't learn how to put makeup on it sounds really silly until I was in my mid-20s okay That's it. yeah I, I your see, makeup is beautiful oh, by the way thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> but I, this but is my, the kind of conversation you don't have with men here <laughs> I'll, I'll put on some makeup next time right? but, um, <laughs> you know walking on the street I see really young girls yeah. or you know wearing makeup or wearing outfits that I would I, you know I don't know if I had a child that I would want her dressed like that yeah. And I think that that pressure is coming from society as a whole. Yeah. And I suppose there is some regulation on the parental level on what filters down and what should or should not be done. But how, I mean, how much can we manage that pressure? Isn't that quite difficult? Yeah, I, I think uh, the social media fuels it because children think it's real. You know, that's where we've got to educate them that it isn't real. It's a fake persona. It's a filtered image. It's a you know, it's adjusted, um, but also saying to them they don't need to grow up so quickly. You know, children are the wisest of beings, actually. Mm. They're more attuned to, we were more attuned at one point in our lives than we are now, yeah. sitting here now. We were far more attuned to what we needed. We were able to ask for it and we kind of unlearned it, you know, and then we, we think we want to be an adult and actually we don't. Yeah. <laughs> None of us here really want to be an adult. No. You know, we can no. adult as much as we like, but actually. <laughs> um, and people say, you work with children, you work with adults. I'm always working for child. Yeah. Because essentially we are. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think, I think children feel the pressure to grow up and they're not equipped their brain is still developing till they're, what, 25? <laughs> Tell me, when. How, what is the age? <laughs> That's the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all, all the time. All the time. It, it never stop. ends. Yeah, no, it never ends. It, re- it really doesn't. It never ends. And, and you know, we're changing, in a serious note, we're really changing the chemistry in our brains. We're really, you can talk more about this than me, but 
I see behaviours and things in children that I know have come are coming from environmental factors and influencing their brain structure. It conditions them, it just sort of puts them in a mould yeah. and they find it more and more difficult to come out of that mould yeah. and, and that role. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting moving forward in terms of medicine. Medicine is kind of seen as a serious profession, but really the best times that I've had as uh, you know, as a as a doctor, is when I have jokes. a bit of yeah jokes, basically, yeah. <laughs> yes. bants, you know, bants. Suddenly, ten fifteen. Well, I've always been fifteen, you know, fourteen. I'm stuck in, I'm stuck in that role. But you know, the best times I've had as a physician and as a doctor is when we're having bants. I I totally agree with that. I think that uh, this is the best thing about general practice, which I love, <laughs> which I love about general practice because um, you do get to know the whole family. You get to know them from literally from cradle to grave. And then the, the relationships that form are actually deep rooted in an amount of respect and humor. Some of my best consultations are because they're humorous. In fact, a lot of my patients will leave the surgery and say to the receptionist, I don't think I've ever laughed that much with a doctor before. <laughs> and that's because I am I am very friendly and I'm very um, uh, easy to get along with. And you sort of find that in medicine, humor does play a huge role. And we I come back to the adage, laughter is the best medicine. Yes. And I sometimes have the most belly laughs with my patients. And it's because you're dealing with quite intimate situations. They're quite scary. I sort of recall a recent situation where a patient of mine, actually at this practice, we, we, we had a tough winter. She's palliative care, went to her house. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. And she goes to me, how long do you think I've got, doctor? Which is a classical question a lot of palliative care patients ask. And the palliative care nurse was there. And I said, well, I'm, I'm just going to make up a name. But I said, I said Mary, I'm really sorry. It, how long is a piece of string? I just can't tell you. Um, but uh, just have a chat with your family. This might be the last Christmas. Famous last words. Anyway, fast forward to Feb- January. She doesn't come in. February, she comes in. She walks into my practice. And she says, you definitely got that wrong, Dr. Aaron. So you're not that good a doctor. <laughs> Your prognosis was wrong. And I was like, do you know what? On these occasions where you didn't die, thank God I was wrong. And we had a really good laugh about it. And I think those are the sort of things that actually make general practice uh, livable, bearable, and also make you keep coming back into work because of those relationships. Uh, a lot of the time when breaking bad news in medicine, when you're taught and physio, you, you, you get lectures and lectures on yeah. breaking bad news. And I've broken bad news. I've told a patient, you know, the diagnosis has come back that you've got pancreatic cancer. And the patient wants to say, all right, doc, I've just had a good innings. Yeah, so, yeah. And those actually are light half relief moments. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are doctors who are too scared to use humour in their surgeries and they become very rigid to their training. You have to get out of that straitjacket of your training of a 10 minute consultation or saying, no, I've got to keep my patient at arm's length. Do you know what? Give your patient a hug when it warrants it. Cry with your patient when it warrants it. Definitely laugh with your mm. patient when it warrants so it. So important. So I, you know, I think it's to do with how we're trained overall. I mean, medicine is a factory production yes. line. And it's. I think it's quite difficult not to become wound up in your professional identity. And because being a doctor in society is equivalent to a certain status, it's yeah. kind of you take that into your personal life sometimes quite a lot. And you know how families ask you about a funny rash. Well, my mum doesn't. I'm not considered a doctor at home. But you know what I mean. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. yeah. I, I, the, the best consultations are is when I'm stopped in, I don't know, the Sainsbury's aisle and they'll say to me, Dr. Arif, I've got some cottage cheese-like. And I'm standing there looking at cottage cheese. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and they're, they're brilliant because, do you know what? That's what makes life amazing and fun. And it's not awkward. It feels that that person has had the confidence to come and even speak to you about yeah. it. And those ad hoc conversations where you have a giggle about it is actually quite good. And as doctors, junior doctors... I don't, I don't know about you, but I fished out all sorts of stuff from various orifices. Um, and if you don't have a giggle about it... Well, I just had a flashback to doing sexual health before last, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think... Well, having done that myself... Part of what you're what saying, like. though, Nicat, is I think it comes to recognising in yourself certain qualities and what makes you happy and what makes you fulfilled, because I think that actually took me time. So you're able to use humour in your everyday practice. I think some people would find that hard. But for me, I think it took me a couple of years down the line after graduating, not that many years, to be completely honest, to recognise that I, you know, I find the restriction quite difficult sometimes. Mm. And I am quite a creative person. I like writing, editing, as you know, some artistic stuff, maybe a bit of media stuff. And I needed to bring that into my professional life somehow. And I, you know, I would... I just I describe myself as a compassionate empathic person I hope especially to patients and I think you just have to you have to recognize what's in you and use that to your advantage in a professional sense use yourself I I think in the world of psychotherapy especially if you're a psychoanalyst which I'm not I'm an integrative therapist so I'm allowed to use different modalities is what that means but if you are a psychoanalytic therapist you would be taught to be very boundary to not you know, hug your client, to never accept gifts, to never use humour, but you're using yourself to break down defences in mm. psychotherapy. And the same in the medical world, Definitely. you're trying to engage someone and connect, aren't you? So if you have warmth and humour, why can't you use that? I've laughed with clients many times oh, they're the, the best years. consultations. They're just, they're just fabulous. And we've cried, we've laughed, that's okay. And, and the consultations where you have had the most open conversation actually do come from laugh, even if it's nervous laughter. Yeah, I, and I completely agree with you. You have to find your boundaries within humour. Humour can go really wrong. I mean, it's like a lead balloon. If it's done wrong, it can literally blow up your Yeah, face. and you can't take it back. No, no, you can't take <laughs> and, and I'm not going to lie, that's happened to me. Um, where I, you know, I've, I've seen somebody and I've just said, oh, that's a really beautiful girl. And the mother will look at me and say, oh, that's no. a boy, Dr. Arif. So <laughs> I've had those. Um, and I think everybody... Do you call that a I, You know, I call that absolutely normal. Man. Well, then I would laugh. It's <laughs> a <So laughs> normal that's daily occurrence. Yeah, yeah, proper cuss, you know. <laughs> and, uh, um, for example, a patient will say to me, oh, gosh, I have this horrible acne on my face. And I'll laugh. And I'll say, that's not acne. And the patient will look at me. Because I think the thing is, is that it, it, uh, as doctors, your extremes are very extreme. Like, for example, what might be normal for us is something that we see every day might not be normal for the patient. And it's trying to find that boundary. So humour has to be used right and in a respectful way. I absolutely agree. But I don't think we should ever shy away from it. And doctors have this image of being straight laced, uh, boring individual as I say slightly on the autistic level and I know I will probably get shut down for that again but they they are seen as somebody who can't have that warmth and um, that openness but actually it makes you better clinicians Mm. they're very factual and linear I would much rather see a clinician 
having been on the receiving end as a parent with a sick child, a clinician who's able to have bants with me, as Dr. Heather was saying, then somebody who's going to give me the factual knowledge of the statistics of this and this, or the statistics of that. Mate, you can't remember. I don't, yeah, mate, yeah. I don't really care about the statistics because that shows me you're hiding behind your figures. Yeah. And that, it, to me, shows that there's a place of insecurity. Mate, I want bants. Yeah, exactly. Come on, mate. <laughs> And it comes back to that connectiveness, having just the, yeah. forget about your titles, forget yeah. about the fact that, you know, we're you're, humans, yeah. yeah, we're human, exactly, we're humans, we are humans yeah. and I don't care if you work on the till or you're a plumber or you're a road sweeper, I will have that conversation with you at a level that's more comfortable with you. So I've stopped working with a 10 minute consultation, it doesn't work. Um, and, I'll, and I've said that often to the Royal College, a 10-minute consultation, because you're again in that straight jacket of ideas, concerns, and expectations. When a patient sits in with me, I say to them, what is in your mind? Tell me what brings you in. But this is one way of looking at humour, because I think we, this is sort of doctor to patient, isn't it? We use humour in different ways. So I had an email recently after, I'd written this article for the BMJ on the use of derogatory terms in medicine relating to ethnicity and gender. Mm. And they'd got back, someone had emailed me about how doctors use black humour and use these terms as a coping mechanism. So I thought that was quite an interesting way of looking at it, Mm. humour as a coping strategy. As as almost kind of a degrading self, as a coping strategy. Or degrading others, even. Degrading others, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think the psyche has always used humour as a defence mechanism Mm. throughout the generations, hasn't it? You only have to look at any comedian and look past their... Uh, comedy mm. to see their their vulnerability and I think humour uh, can be uh, harmful in that sense because you can hide behind it as you said Nika mm. you can hide behind maybe your data and your knowledge yeah. but you can also hide behind your humour I think there's a real balance there of actually being being human and saying do you know what I've done that I've said yeah. to clients many times I've done that you yeah. know um, we're human I've felt that feeling and then they think, oh. as long as it's caring, you know, yeah. as, as as long as there's a caring dynamic in the relationship there, I think humour, whether it's you have a relate, you know, um, race connotation, sex connotation, I think that's fine, as long as you've got a caring dynamic going yeah, on yes. there, not a derogatory dynamic, um, and humans are very good at, at sensing, you know, that they're you know they're being taken the piss out of. Yeah. Yeah. The, the weird yeah. thing is, it's sorry to interrupt you there, that laughter is universal. Like yeah. Everybody yeah. laughs the same. Everyone knows how to laugh. Yeah. And everybody knows how to laugh. Yeah. And I find that mind-blowing. You could go into the Outer Hebrides and that yeah. person will laugh, possibly at a similar joke, so someone falling over. Ha, 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 ha. You know, like we're laughing now. We <laughs> do laugh therapy in Japan. Come yeah. on, this yeah. is a thing. And, you know, we know that endorphins and serotonin and all of those happy hormones are released when we laugh. And so surely if we can make that connectiveness as clinicians, yes, just on that basis, then there is that caring that will yes. run throughout that. That's why comedians are loved. Yes. And, I, and I think at the root of it, we all have vulnerabilities and doctors like to be liked. That's why yeah. they're doctors. Yeah. And, you know, through vulnerability comes healing. Yes. You know, that is the Absolutely. actual uh, healing process that, you know, you do have to go through pain, suffering, vulnerability, and after that comes the healing. And my personal opinion is if we are vulnerable in that doctor-patient relationship, 
it does help the, the healing. But mm. are we vulnerable enough? And, and, you know, the answer is no, we're not. I don't know if it's just about vulnerability, though. If you think about it in practical terms, compassion takes time. And also, doctors who are burning out, I think, are less likely to be compassionate Mm. because your priorities are then shifting. Yeah, I think that's a great point. We've got to support our professionals. As a psychotherapist, time and time again, I see professionals in all areas, medical, um, educational, burning out. And I know this is something that, Mm. that we spoke about earlier, but... We've got to support that because we lose our ability to contain and be compassionate. It's the same in parenting. Mm. If we don't look after one another to do mm. the jobs we do, mm. how can we do them? You know, we, we've got to be able to support our medical teams to, to think about that burnout, to think about the trauma that you're, you know, we're talking about humour. Mm. Because if we didn't have humour, we'd be very traumatised. We, we deal with very traumatic mm. news and situations. Mm. We would we? be. And this is where I think burnout actually can be prevented where if you do have that humor uh, i mean we were before we started this podcast um Fizzo was saying you, you know everybody at your practice um you know is really lovely and i do i my door is open i could have the receptionist the, the cleaner anybody i will know them they will can come in and we can have a joke or a banter with each other very quick those little tiny moments are where you have a little bit of a laughter um are actually what then gives you a bit of relaxation you laugh your serotonin is really you're happy and you have that connectiveness even if they're minuscule but it allows you to have those outbursts without having to feel okay i'm just seeing exhausting patients exhausting patients or exhausting people who are coming in and taking up my time your secretaries and burning out and i will actively make time for my secretary and my pa we have a coffee with each other we'll chat things through and that isn't just related, just, I'm not the only one that does that. I know millions and millions of doctors, or thousands of doctors who do that across the world and millions of, etc. And what we need to do is keep that humour alive mm. by picking up things. And that, you know. The connectivity. Exactly. My PA downstairs sometimes has the worst haircut. I'd be like, Mo, that's the most gorgeous haircut I've ever seen. She went, yeah. why are we telling you that? <laughs> <laughs> and we have a little giggle with each other. Well, or she'll comment on my hijab. We're, 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 we're coming towards the end of the podcast. And I, I just wanted to finish off by saying, um, or sort of asking you three ladies, um, how do you deal with your burnout kind of, uh, de burnout process. Well, what do you do? Like, I think your... we've known each other well enough that we laugh a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we definitely do, and I think I I don't take myself too seriously. The minute mm. you start taking yourself too seriously, or you start thinking that you're amazing at your station, uh, actually the downfall is harder. So uh, I try and take each step at a time. And for me, I think the biggest thing is is that faith plays a huge part in what I do Mm. so uh, I need that connectedness to be able to switch off from everybody else and my faith then grounds me as well as my two-year-old he grounds me (laughs) (laughs) he doesn't care what I do (laughs) literally he will ground you yeah yeah I think for me it's very similar it's it's humor I have to have humor and I have to expand my mind Mm. I have to open up you know when you're dealing with trauma and I do a lot of trauma work as you do You've got to expand your mind to other things to to have hope and have reason for change. So for me, it's my research, it's doing things like this, it's exercise, it's being with like-minded people. That's what gives me my life energy. I think for me, it's taken time and experience and learning. And the most important thing has probably been learning about myself, acknowledging that I like a bit of freedom in my career. I like variety. I like creativity and bringing those things into it. Um, I've worked less than full time. 
to try and bring in more of a family life because I've recognised that that's important to me. I've created ways of doing other projects like kindly Dr. Arif over here invited me, invited me here today. And I think that's all important for my kind of well-being as a whole professionally. But then there's all that stuff, isn't there? Like yoga and a bit of meditation, baking cakes, all of that fun stuff too. I think that's great. It's the, yeah. the variety is the spice of life. And um, having being clinicians, if you have that variety, for example, I've worked every day, but I've only done three clinics this week. Um, obviously my patient aren't happy about it, but, but I don't feel tired or exhausted because I've met with individuals outside of medicine, people who I would never dream of meeting uh, if I just stayed stuck in my surgery. So variety is definitely the spice of life and that is the thing that prevents burnout. And I think as a doctor in training, I think you also have to recognise, I mean, we were sort of talking about this before, about being able to recognise what is externally being, in a way, imposed on you and what you are and how to express yourself. And then we were also talking about professional and personal boundaries. And I know around this table we vary in this, but I've created a real distinction as much as I can between personal and professional because it just makes... I don't know, I think it just gives you that mind space to come back refreshed. Yeah, holds you safely, definitely. Well, thank you so much for for sort of landing us on this sort of safe uh, mode. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this instalment of the Surgical Spirit podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk for more information on the work that I do. And please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I've been Dr. Haider Al-Hakim and I'll see you next time.